This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Have you ever wondered what's happening in your body and brain when you feel an emotion? Or how about how to better cope with negative ones? Or why we even have them in the first place? It turns out the answers to these questions aren't as straightforward as they might first seem. In this episode, I speak to neuroscientist and author Dr. Dean Burnett. He tells me about the surprising discoveries underpinning emotions that he made when writing his new book, Emotional Intelligence. Okay, so we're talking about emotions. And in the first chapter of the book, you encounter the problem that there isn't really an agreed definition of exactly what an emotion is. Why is it so hard to pin down the definition? Yeah, it's a really, um, again, it was a big issue when I first started writing the book, the first draft. I mean, the book was originally meant to be a breezy and fun overview of the science of emotions, which I had been led to believe was well-established and understood, uh, which is not the case at all. Yeah, there's lots of different factors which uh, play into this and it sort of relates to how like i'm a behavioral neuroscientist by training and that's why i was my phd in the behavioral neuroscience lab in cardiff and you know, although it surprised a lot of people but that sort of discipline you essentially although you're trying to study the brain you ignore the mind because mm. although it's like the most important part from by most people's perspectives it's it's really hard to study now and impossible because you know, it's got no objective parameters. We don't have any way to assess it or analyze or measure it or weigh it or, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's not tangible in that respect. And uh, the same thing applies to emotions too. Like we all recognize them and we also appreciate them and you know, are aware of them, but it's really hard to write down what exactly they are. You know, it's almost like art in that respect. Is it everyone, yeah, that's art, but, you know, where does the art and junk end? What's, what's the parameters? What's the boundary? It's all very subjective. So it's a big part of that. Like emotions are variable and intangible in m- many ways. So being able to you know, assess them and 
find a robust definition is is tricky. And do you know, it um, in terms of how the brain works. Emotions don't really have one thing. I think it's, it's a very common question we get asked a lot lately: is where in the brain do emotions come mm. from? And I've realised that's kind of saying where on earth does air come from? So, well. <laughs> It comes from lots of places, you know. It's it's not uh, <laughs> it's not one thing. Like there's lots of different factors, and it's it's a huge elaborate process. And it's very similar here. You know, some parts produce more than others, like the oceans and the the rainforests. They produce more oxygen, but uh, that doesn't mean and no, nothing else does. And you know, other parts are involved. So when you experience an emotion, is there just like one raw uh, neurological aspect, which is the pure emotion, or should the expression of emotion be taken into account? Should the reaction to it, should the sensory aspect which led to it, should the physical reactions which stem from it, are they part of the emotion, or are they not? And that's all sort of a big part of the discussion. And you know, it's because they've been so fundamental to our very existence for so long, I think people don't realize that just because something is familiar doesn't mean it's easy or simple. And I fell into that trap very early on. So yeah, there's lots of different definitions to it. Like I think in the book, I, rec- I say like saying emotions, like saying farm animals. Everyone knows what that is, and they know what is and isn't one. But if you had to define a farm animal in a technical sense, like you have to dissect a pig, you'd, you'd struggle just by going with farm animal. And mm. uh, yeah, so because it's because they have so many different properties, and like wh- where they begin and end is um, still hotly debated. So defining them is hard to do. So, with that said, Ben, how do we actually go about studying emotions? You know, what what do all these neuroscientists and psychologists actually do? Yeah, well, the study of emotions neuroscientifically is uh, usually labelled affective neuroscience. Affect. Um, So, scientists uh, have this term called affect, which is basically a way of describing the experience of having an emotion. You know, something is happening when we experience an emotion, and affect is the label we attach to that something. Now, there is a school of thought now which um, suggests that affect is like the raw building block of emotional experience. And our brains take this affect like you know, like a pot of wood clay and shape it into something which we would recognize as an emotion as uh, as and when we need. So like there's the, this is the constructivist view of emotions. So there's uh, some people argue, you know, for a while, for a very long time, and still in many cases, it's was believed that there are basic emotions, like the bedrock of emotion mm. is uh, like the, the fundamental emotional keys on a piano like you know you can these are the ones which are the the baseline and everything's built up around (laughs) these so fear anger surprise disgust these were considered to be basic emotions but now there's um a rival school of thought rival model which suggests that no no what we have is affect the brain produces an emotional reaction to whatever happens to us and then uses this to say right in this case we need to be experiencing fear and this is a bad thing and we want to get away from it so you know the brain generates a fear response so in this case this is an injustice we need to generate an anger response and it's also tweaked and modified in each each case in a, according to what what's needed which is obviously a different a different approach isn't like there, there is no such thing as a fundamental emotion in this regard it's all uh, just very familiar and constantly used ones so you know but you can still study the neurological activity that's happening in the brain. Like, given how brain scanners work, so you, mm. someone has an emotional experience, you can see what's happening in their brain. So, like, oh, when they experience this, uh, like, in, if it's fear, and like they're clearly scared, they're saying they're scared, we would see activity in the amygdala, which is like obviously <laughs> one of the emotional hubs in the brain. It's involved a lot of emotional related processes. Uh, but if someone is experiencing disgust or looking at a disgusting sight, uh, being told a disgusting story, 
they usually see increased activity in the insular cortex, which is a different part of the brain. So you know, that does lend uh, um, uh, credence to the idea that there are neurological fundamental basics of emotions. Um, so they've got that sort of discipline there. Uh, but again, there's also data which like things like happiness. It doesn't seem to have any one particular bit which mm. causes uh, elevated activity in the brain. Uh, but also something like anger. Now, if you study someone being angry, you would see elevated activity in like the temporal lobe regions of the hypothalamus, which is to do with uh, motivation. So, like the uh, anger makes us more motivated. As anyone who's been angry probably <laughs> realizes, we want to do something about it. Whether it's, uh, you know, it also suppresses our, uh, you know, our risk assessment. Sometimes we will, if we're, if we're especially angry, we'll get stuck into something which we would normally avoid because, like, we just cannot abide letting this go. So like, it's very motivational, but that's a different thing. So the part of the brain which handles motivation, like the hypothalamus and frontal lobe, is another complex process. That will be elevated when someone's angry, but that's not the part of the brain producing anger. That's being activated by the anger. So you know, separating those two, you know, is, this, is this a cause or an effect? That's a big part of it as well. So yeah, there's lots of ways to look at it. I mean, a lot of the, the most influential research was based on faces, like observing people's faces and recognizing the expression they're showing is this person happy is this person sad and if you can recognize that as many cultures can it suggests that there is a direct neurological link between what's happening in the brain in emotion and what's happening in your face so it's like the footprints of emotions and you can get a lot of information from that so there's lots of different things to be studied and i think the more we study the more closer we get to a set definition of emotions but that's obviously Ideally, you'd have it the other way around because then you could have people studying different things if they don't know what degrees of what emotion is. But it is the situation we've got, and that's what people are working towards resolving it as best they can. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have a, a tendency to kind of split their way of thinking into one part is emotion and one part is cognition. So thinking and feeling, and these are two independent processes. But as you explain in the book, that they're actually very intimately linked. Yes, like uh, I, I use the terms emotion and cognition in the book a lot to sort of to to, to differentiate between what we would uh, understand as these things. But uh, you know, at the most you know, fundamental levels, at the neurological you know, basics, they are there's a lot of intertwining. They are really sort of interdependent on each other. You anyway, know, it's widely agreed that like uh, thought, conscious thought, rational thought, evolved out of emotion, much like mm-hmm. you know. A mushroom evolves from the stem, you know, evolves, grows out of, and uh, so like obviously emotions are the, the the building blocks of thought in the evolutionary sense. You know, like they we develop from there because you get a lot of primitive creatures which do seem to show what looks like emotion. You know, that's it, primitive, more simple creatures. Everything obviously is as evolved as we are. So yeah, like they, you know, even in the evolutionary sense, there's a lot of overlap between the two. And for, for a while, it was believed that there was a, a, a neurological separation between thought and feelings uh, with like the, the neocortex the top complex part of the brain being responsible for rational thought the human stuff the thinking and the limbic system the middle bit above the reptile brain but below the neocortex uh, being the emotional part of all also all memories and reflexes and perceptions and emotions are generated again more recent data more like complex research methods have revealed that that is once again an oversimplification there's a great deal of overlap between the two and things like executive functioning the ability to consciously control your actions your thoughts your feelings and to stop yourself from doing things which are emotionally motivated that is obviously 
something which suggests that our brain can control emotions with conscious thought, but executive functioning sort of develops as a result of emotions. So emotions happen and we think, okay, that, that happened and this was the consequence. Maybe I shouldn't do that again. And you, you learn from it that way. But also the emotions we end up developing and having are also produced or like oh, the result of regular feedback and regular assessment of the outcome, appraisal theory it is. So when you have an emotion response to something and then you consciously say, oh, well, that shouldn't have happened or I'm, I'm, I don't like the fact that this happened. So next time this similar experience occurs, I will have a different emotional experience. So emotions shape our, you know, our ability to think and our thinking shapes our ability or our tendency to feel certain emotions. So there's a great deal of um, you know, cognitive overlap. Um, and also in the neurological sense, I think there was like the anterior cingulate cortex. It was widely believed a long time that, that that does have distinct channels or like networks which are one side for emotions, one side for mm. rational thought. But again, more recent uh, data suggests that no, there's there's overlap there as well. Like as in, the rational can affect the emotional, and the emotional can affect the rational. Affect the rational. And I think in the book, one of the um, analogies I use is like people think they were like, two. No. Cognition and emotion are like two neighbors who share a fence and occasionally bicker and get, don't get on. But it's more like you know a river split into two streams. Like at source, they they have very very similar or the same origins, just end up in different places. So it's probably a little more helpful to look at it like that in some respects because you know, the brain is never as simple as a binary divide uh, would suggest. So we've talked a lot about the brain there, but actually the brain influences the body and vice versa. So could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in the emotional sense, uh, this is like almost like the origins of uh, emotion study. Chapter one, I talked about the Stoics, uh, the ancient Greeks who realised that emotions are things, uh, distinct things with a physical presence in the world because when we have an emotion, there's often a physical component to it as well. So like when you're scared, your, your skin goes white because the blood rushes away. And when you're angry, you tense up and like tremble and uh, when you're happy like you smile because you can't stop yourself and you turn red and embarrassment makes you red and passion all those things so there's a definite physical component to to a lot of familiar emotions and that you know suggests that there's a link between what's happening in the brain and the body as well but some schools of thought actually push it further suggest that what's happened in the body is actually plays a bigger role in what emotions we feel than, than you'd expect. So like the somatic marker hypothesis, which suggests that our brain recognizes our body is doing this combination of things, which means we need to produce the emotion of happiness, anger, fear, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's a sort of, it's not the most uh, widely held model, but you know, there's evidence suggests something like that is occurring. And again, like just like with emotion and cognition in the cognitive sense, in the, the physical sense, People like myself regularly say brain and body as if they are, once again, two distinct things, mm. like a pilot in a sort of big meat suit. But um, it's actually more like, you know, it's, it's, they're far more intertwined than that. There's a lot more overlap. There's no one you know, as distinct because the brain is an organ and needs the body to survive, just like the body needs the brain to function as well. And um, so things like, you know, the, the endocrine system, the fact that you know, your brain and other organs secrete hormones into your body, which have, uh, usually induce an emotional response of some sort uh shows that you know, your body can influence what your brain is thinking i mean the thinking anorexia uh, the loss of all the fatty adipose tissue means certain hormones aren't in the blood supply which can further distort how 
your brain perceives the body and uh, you know the self-image and stuff. So you know, that's a big part of that as well. And uh, the vagus nerve is something which gets a lot of attention in the modern literature. It's the cranial nerve, like one of the 12 nerves that uh, come from your brain stem and stuff and link to your head and upper body. But the vagus nerve is one that links to all the other organs. It's the big one. But it's mostly an enteric system, which means it's mostly receiving feedback from all your organs and relaying what's happening in those organs to the brain, like a really powerful broadband cable. Uh, but that means when something's gone wrong with your organs or something's amiss, like a chemical imbalance, like they say, or disruption or a kidney stone, something like that, your brain's very aware of it. Like before you, we consciously are, like we're not just feeling the pain going, oh, that hurts. It's like your brain's getting updates on a regular basis from the, you know, the disruption to the organ and you know, reacts accordingly. So things like, you know, especially like the digestive system, like the gut-brain axis, that's a particularly key one because obviously as important as all organs are the digestive system is where stuff enters the body so it's like the gateway and therefore there's a lot of complex neurological systems to help regulate and monitor that so things that go wrong in the stomach and intestines you know the brain's very attuned to that via the vagus nerve and so if if your stomach is if your diet or your gut bacteria causing problems the brain recognizes that too something's wrong something's wrong something's wrong and therefore you get anxiety depression or like just general mm. stress so like a lot of uh, new th- therapies for treating mental health problems like depression are focusing on the vagus nerve or the gut which doesn't know objectively if you first hear that you're thinking how does that even work how does some problem in your brain get helped by you know changing your gut bacteria but, but that's how because you know the your body your brain recognizes something's going wrong with your body and at the subconscious emotional level responds to it and obviously so your cognition is twittering away up, up top just like oblivious and you're suddenly feel, developing these feelings and bad moods and stuff so yeah so the body is a is a huge part to play in both the experience and expression of emotions too so yeah relaying emotional cues to others a lot of that is body language as the cliche goes like only 10 percent of communication is verbal mm. a lot of it is how your body is behaving in a way which convey an emotional message to to the wider world hola is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So you mentioned uh, there about expressing emotions. So you mentioned facial expressions. So what, what do we know about facial expression? Are there universal facial expressions found over the entire human race to express emotions? 
Well, that was uh, the sort of the assumption, or not the belief, even. Let's go further than that. Um, uh, throughout much of the uh, emotion research world, thanks to the work of Paul Ekman in the seventies, and um, it was believed to be definitive. Like, like that's one thing everyone agrees on: that the the facial expressions are universal throughout all cultures, and therefore the emotions are too. So it's not like before then, for his work, it was genuinely agreed that people learn facial expressions, like we learn the language we um, we grew up to speak. And uh, you know, we, we have language processing parts of the brain, like your broker's area, your wernickies and stuff, but there was like, um, like the hardware, which needs to be programmed. And as we grow mm. up, we surrounded by English, French, German-speaking parents, family, community, and that's the language <coughs> we speak. We're not born speaking it. And people thought the same thing applied to facial expressions. But then Paul Ekman's work with like indigenous tribes and remote cultures feel that they have very similar facial expressions to the wider world. And therefore, well, they haven't learned from anyone else. Therefore, they must be universal. And that that was the dominant uh, belief, in, or the dominant model in emotion research for a very long time. And still is in many respects in a way that's actually becoming unhelpful. Uh, it's like a later chapter, but like a lot of software and algorithms which are programmed to recognize people's emotions from a distance are based on this idea that your face your facial expressions are you know emotional and universal across all cultures and all people <clears throat> and modern research says that that might not be right that's actually not necessarily the case I mean, there's an element of that but even amongst the you know the communities which agree that your emotions are you know uh, effectively portrayed by your face uh, universally and uh, consistently amongst c- people and cultures. There's debate there as well. Like, uh, for example, uh, not all emotions are uh, corresponded. Uh, not all emotions have a corresponding facial expression. Like, what is someone who is experiencing satisfaction, that's an emotion, what's their face look like? I mean, you can speculate, but it's not consistent, or pride. Or what's the expression when it says guilt? I mean, there's a powerful emotion, but there's no one expression which everyone goes, oh, that's a guilty person. I know that face. So there are like quiet emotions or silent emotions or invisible, whatever you want to call them. But also some people run sort of um, deep analysis of all the different micro-expressions you can have and found that actually like fear and anger have a very similar facial expression in like uh, in, in the sort of at the, at the fine granular level. So we should count those as one. So now there's only four expressions, not seven, not six. Not, but... Um, but yeah, but then then later research suggests that uh, although even if people do have you know a consistent facial reaction and it might be consistent across cultures, not everyone shows the exact same expression. Like there's no one expression that everyone has for happiness. Like you can recognize it, uh, but you know you can recognize like a pet, but not every pet is the same, and you you and you understand the concept of it. Um, but when when people are made to sort of like uh, look at facial expressions and given a choice of like, is this person happy, sad, depressed, angry, they can get it right like 99% of the time. If you do candid shots, or like someone who's not putting an exaggerated expression for the camera, mm. or don't give them options, saying what what emotion is this person experiencing, then our ability to recognize it falls through the floor because like it's like 25, 30, 40% compared to 90 odd because... No, it's not just the face. Like the face is a big part of it, but more and more now it's become accepted that the context is essential too. Because if someone's got a certain expression, like said, oh, they're happy, like you see the big smiley face and stuff, and they pan back and they've been given a birthday present, they go, yep, I was right. Mm-hmm. You pan back and someone's got a knife at them. Like, oh no, actually they're terrified and they don't know what to do. And like so, yeah, the wider context is way more important than the initial theories about them. Um, 
universal facial expressions would have suggested. But nonetheless, a lot of very important influential like, organizations and systems have adopted this idea that you can tell someone's emotion from their face alone and integrated into integrated it into their like uh, the operating system or the security system and that that's not great that's that's unhelpful and that's going to cause problems if it hasn't already so sticking with expressing emotions probably the most overt expression of emotion is crying i've never really thought about this before but you know when you're sad or you're in pain water comes out of your eyes but the more i think about that the stranger it is mm. so what what do we know about crying and the, and the response to emotion yeah, well, crying is probably the most classic example of emotions have a physical component. You know, it's an actual expulsion from your body. That and laughter, you know, when you're amused, you laugh. It's a big, aggressive, uh, over-the-top physical manifestation of an emotional state. But um, uh, crying is obviously another one. And I think, it's, again, it's one of those things, everyone recognizes it, or babies cry. Obviously, it's a very fundamental reflex, mm. but it's... Uh, Again, way more complex than you'd perhaps anticipate because like, there are three types of tears. Like your, your basal tears, which just keep your eyes wet on a day-to-day basis, minute by minute. Your reflex tears, which you get onion vapor or dust in your eye, and, like you just like trying to flush it out. But psycho-emotive tears, the tears we experience when we have an emotional reaction to things, are actually chemically different to the other two. They contain things like oxytocin or certain endorphins or certain hormones which aren't produced when we cry because of onions or whatever it is. And that suggests, oh, the, the emotional reaction we're having is causing a chemical response in our body, a chemical change in our physical output. Also, like, what's the benefit? Why, why would we evolve the ability to leak water from our eyes when in an intense emotional state? Usually sadness, but I know some people who cry because they're angry. You know, they don't want to cry. They're not sad but it's just like a reflex they can't seem to help or people cry with laughter or cry because they're overwhelmed by happiness you know it's it's a weirdly broad uh, physical response to an emotional state and there's arguments that it's actually um it, it, it's a cue it's like so other people around us because we are such a social communicative species like, and sharing our emotional state is a big part of, of just default existence we, our brains do it all the time as do our bodies so when someone's in an intense emotional state and they start leaking water from their eyes, that's a sign for those around them to say, oh, this person is in an extreme emotional state. I can either A, help, obviously they're in distress, or B, join in. You know, if they're you know, they happy tears and like you want to, you, obviously you want to share that happiness. You want to say, oh, what, what's the big deal? What's going on? Why, why are you so pleased? And can I, can I have some, can I have some happiness, please? And that's a, you know, it's a useful emotional trait. But that, that even that doesn't really, so just why the chemical differences. So there's some arguments that when we cry, we excrete like oxytocin and stuff, uh, which absorbs into our skin, and we become sort of more emotionally open so other people can help us and we can share you know, our work state with others. Or it's because they, they might evaporate and then the other people around us can, you know, there's emotion, there's o- emotions, there are emotions in the air, but via the form of oxytocin and other social hormones that so people inhale and become more open, emotionally available uh, enhances their emotional connection to you um it, that's it's a theory uh, it'll, it's a tricky one to sort of prove conclusively but you know, they have done studies where people have inhaled other people's tears and have had different emotional responses to certain stimuli um it, it, it's unlikely to say you know it, it helps you that much because you, your tears are full of emotional hormones and they absorb by your skin that's 
it's a very indirect and inefficient way of doing it when your brain just produces this stuff anyway you know just instantly <laughs> it's a lot easier to, to drop it in their own bloodstream than go via the outer skin but um yeah so it could be just a so it's a way of bonding and connecting with other people in your when you're emotionally uh vulnerable or emotionally stimulated in order to uh, shore up connections with others or maybe get their assistance so that's one you know that's that's the main theory that i've heard about that so i'm one of those people that cries quite easily so i'll often describe films as like a seven crier or something <laughs> but um even though it seems like a negative experience like i'll deliberately watch sad films i'll deliberately listen to sad music that makes me cry so what do we know about you know i'm not alone in that what do we know about why people do that yeah, that's something which was uh, confusing to me too, because obviously the book was written from my perspective when my father died from COVID and I was like struggling with the grief and isolation because of lockdown. So I was exploring a lot of my own emotions and uh, also some of the log jams I had because I wasn't an easy crier before this happened. I'm, I'm far more so now because I'm less emotionally ignorant, hence the title of the book. And uh, But a guy was because I was at a head full of confused emotions, I was sort of using sad things like sad sad demons as a sort of emotional nicotine patch to sort of mm. make sure i did cry a bit i'm a big fan of pixar films and they're very good at that and sort of finding the, the particular moment which just causes you to break down a bit and that's um but yeah, so, but when you're looking for entertainments which make you sad or make you cry you're pretty much spoiled for choice which objectively is sort of counterintuitive because like but nobody wants to be sad we don't like to be sad we, mm. it's a negative emotion we try to avoid it same with anger same with you know fear but there are loads of entertainments out there which are designed to produce these exact emotional states and if you have people who act in sad sad films they more likely to win awards than someone who does a comedy and that's just you know we've we ascribe a lot of value to the ability to make people sad or you know experience negative emotions and a lot of that it turns out is because uh we are as a, like i said as people we are kind of fixated with being happy you know, we do uh, things we can to make ourselves happier or at least avoid stress and stuff like that so we avoid negative emotions where we can but that's not necessarily the best approach when it comes to healthy brain and well-being mm. so when you experience a negative emotion uh it's novel which your brain likes anyway but if it's in a safe context, if it's in a situation where like, it's not affecting you directly, aside from the emotional being experienced, so it's not like a situation which you know, negatively impacts on your life and you have control over it, that means your brain gets to experience uh, an emotion it doesn't normally get to, which means your brain becomes better at processing and handling that emotional state uh, for later use. And you know, it's like a, basically like taking your, your mind to the gym. That's mm-hmm. right. Okay, I don't normally get to do... Uh, fear so let's watch a scary film yeah. fire up the fear system then you know, the brain goes okay this is how you handle fear okay and goes, got some good practice with that uh but it's not actually scary in the sense of it's not happening to me and i can turn this off or leave the cinema whenever i want to put the book down i remain full control i'm just indulging myself in this emotional state and you see that people who like listen to sad music or like who regularly indulge in sad films they are better able to handle uh sad situations when they happen for real Similar data, which I've always liked, is that you know, heavy metal fans, you know, chronic and persistent heavy metal fans who love it, despite what your appearances and stereotypes may suggest, they tend to be the least angry people. Like they are the, 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 the hardest to make angry, and they handle things a lot more passively and calmly because the music they listen to and they love 
induces anger in them on a regular basis, their brain has the ability to go, right, this is supposed to make me angry. I know what anger is like. I'm just going to yep, file that away. Don't worry about it. You know, I can, I'm on top of that. And that's what these entertainments do for us. They give us the ability to in, indulge in a negative emotion at little or no risk to ourselves. So your brain gets to do the work and uh, reap the benefits uh, with little cost. And therefore, you know, these neg- negative, quote-unquote, uh, but essential uh, emotional states are experienced and uh, make our brain just generally better and healthier. And it recognizes that, hence we keep coming back. So kind of related to that, sometimes feeling a strong emotion can have an effect uh, on our thinking. So I think most people will have experienced something like this, though, if they get angry and they, they do something out of character or, or something silly. So what do we know about what's going on there? You know, Do we know what's happening in the brain when that sort of thing happens? Yeah, I think, um, I know I said like, you know, emotions and thought aren't necessarily that separate, but there's a degree of, you know, separation that some parts handle the emotional bits and some parts handle the cognitive and rational bits. And you know, the brain has lots of things going on at any one time. And there's lots of different things which, uh, you know, affect this. But what it boils down to ultimately is that the brain has limited resources. You know, it's a very extremely powerful organ. It's very capable. But it can only do so much with you know, within the limits of biology and physics. So you know, our brain's got like it, it can do any number of dozens of things, but it can't do them all at once. Mm-hmm. And like this is the famous statistic that we only use ten percent of our brain, which isn't true uh, because we don't. Um, you know, the brain's such a demanding organ; it uses up like thirty-three percent of our body's ready fuel just by existing. Um, so if we didn't need it, we wouldn't have it. You know, all, all of it's useful, but. It's also like, so we use like 100% of the brain, so 10% is wrong. But also, it's also an overestimate in that we can't activate, deliberately activate 10% at once. It's more like mm. we can only like fire up 3% of the brain in terms of different regions at any one time before the available resources get maxed out. So when you are, you know, co- cognitive thought and rational thinking and logic is a like, neurologically demanding process. It's very complex. It's very intricate. It's very um, a lot of information is being handled and processed and calculated, which requires resources. So when you're like in a neutral state, if there is such a thing, it depends on you know, when you ask about that. Your brain has the resources available. Like, okay, I'm going to sit there and think calmly about this thing. I'm going to go through that. I'm going to assess the situation and make my decision according to the available data. But when something happens, put you in a strong emotional state, uh, your brain's resources are being diverted to the parts of the brain which cause that state to exist and you might you might think that's an essential thing to do because something has happened like you know, a lot of it's instinctive and reflexive so you don't have much choice it's um you know, emotions happen faster than rational thought because they're a more direct simple process but then your brain doesn't have as much resources available to direct to the rational thinking parts of your brain which would normally be used to put a lid on the emotions or to keep them under control so it's like you know if you think of like the rational part of your brain as got the lead and the motion part is a really big dog sometimes like the, the dog gets bigger and stronger and then you don't have the physical ability to restrain it so it goes off you know or, or pulls you too far one direction and it's got to get tired out before you come back to it so sometimes you're in an emotional state and you can't think clearly but if you do just enough to separate yourself from the situation and you calm down and come back to it then you can think clearly because your brain's worked through the powerful emotion and now it has resources available again to let rational thought retake control. So it's a lot of it's, it. A lot of it's based on what our brain is capable of doing at any one time, and the fact that emotions happen faster, so they tend to get in there first. They get in the early doors. They they grab the good seats before like before the waiter's ready, and then you have to 
make do with what's left. And um, yeah, so you know, emotions can distort or downplay or suppress rational thinking that way. Because uh, when, they, when they're strong and powerful and instinctive, uh, the brain has less fuel available, less resources to direct a rational thought to, to counteract it. So another important role emotions play in our lives is in feelings of empathy. So what's going on, you know, when we feel empathy? I mean, why do we even feel it? And is it always a good thing? Yeah, empathy is one of those, um, I, I won't say it's uniquely human, but it's, a, it's an incredibly important part of the human experience. Like so much of our emotional state and emotional experience is contingent on the feelings of others. And you know, we have emotions and we, we feel them. But so much of the, the whole process involved in expressing them, which means we want to share them with others or tell other people how we're feeling. It's like half the whole deal of emotions is putting them out there. When we talk about facial expressions, the only reason that would make any sense is if declaring our emotions to the wider world and those people in it had an evolutionary role. And that's sort of how we work because we're such a social communicative species. We actually, you know, we communicate on a subconscious level more often than than not, if anything, because we do have this need to constantly be in contact with our fellow human. Like isolation, like solitary confinement, is a recognized form of torture for a reason. Because it's like being deprived of your senses in some respect. Like you, you can't, you don't know what's going on. Your brain doesn't handle complete isolation very well at all. Which is why, arguably, why like um, lockdown is such a big, heavy mental burden for so many people because they you know, deprived us of one thing. All humans tend to need, or all ninety nine point nine percent. There are obviously exceptions to that rule, um, as always the case. But yeah, so empathy allows us to connect with other people and form a group, a community, uh, far more effectively and far more rapidly than you know, conscious mm. speaking, like uh, talking to each other and trying to convince someone else that you're. This is what I think, or this is what I think, and you no, know, that's, that's a more long winded process. Just by recognizing someone's emotional state and sharing it forms these bonds much faster and communicates things a lot a lot uh, more efficiently and quickly than uh, logical speech or like text-based uh, conversations. So it's really good in that respect. And it helps us understand things a lot more. You know, if someone, current people run around the corner, like running, like uh, like in a sort of apocalypse film, you think, oh, a lot of scared people. That's really bad. I'm scared too. And then you join in and run. And again, it's a it's an obvious survival trait to to. To, to endure, just to share the feelings that was around you, and obviously it's a good thing in that it's got us to this point. It kept us alive and made us the most dominant species. Um, you know, our ability to connect and interact is heavily empathy based, but also there are downsides now, particularly in the more common modern world. So, you know, like I say, there are times when you experience emotion; it makes you know, impinges on your ability to think rationally. And if you're around other people who are all experiencing a strong emotion, you're likely to experience it too thanks to empathy and that'll color or cloud your own ability to think normally that's where you get things like mob mentality you're in the middle of a highly aroused angry crowd and they start doing things which are like emotionally charged if you're in amongst that you usually can't help it empathy your empathy system systems kick in you detect right everyone else is angry i don't want to stand out so i'm gonna be angry as well about the external thing which you're all angry at and i'm gonna and I'm going to behave in ways which uh, I wouldn't normally. So that's where you get people who are in the middle of riots will cause property damage or do things that are really dangerous or damage and get arrested. And they wouldn't normally ever do that. But when they're surrounded by other people who are doing that, they, you know, their brains work differently. It's a process called de-individuation. Uh, you know, we lose our you know, sense of self to a certain extent because the empathy or the emotional contagion 
that's what it's called if you can't pin it on one specific person that overwhelms us and becomes you know becomes uh, something which dominates our our actions and you know, oftentimes not uh, not for the best so we've covered an awful lot there <laughs> i just think sort of by way of closing you know what have you learned about dealing with your own emotions and regulating your own emotions etc while you were writing and researching the book just as a way of summing up yeah i think i've learned that um you know, emotions are really important uh, way more important than i ever give them credit for even like in most of the scientific field like they, they are you know oftentimes just an afterthought or just acknowledge that they're there but you know you don't focus on them but they affect so much of who we are what we do I think everything we think and do and feel is uh, influenced or at least uh, uh, impacted on or caused directly by our emotional state and so we need to suppress them like there, there are obviously instances when you should uh maybe not suppress completely but to keep them under control or like not act on them yeah. but the the whole bottling up thing like uh and i, I don't just mean you know, the masculine stoic must not show emotions thing even things like you know the uh the positivity movement like you must be happy at all times you can choose to be happy choose your attitude those are just another way of bottling up. As in, so you have a negative emotion, that's wrong. Don't do that. Force yourself to have a different emotion. That's just as unhelpful as saying, you know, must not suppress, must not show emotion. Uh, just show, if, if anything, something my research says that showing a different emotion than when you're feeling can be more stressful. It may cause more damage overall than, than just mm. not showing anything. Uh, because obviously you, you're activating more parts of your brain which don't want to be activated at this particular point. And that's you know, that's unhelpful. So, I would say what I've learned mostly is don't uh, try and suppress your emotions if you don't have to. Uh, let them happen. They are valid and they are essential. There'll be times when you don't have a choice, but you know, try and get around to it later. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the idea that you have to be rational and logical at all times—it's not not only impractical. It's incorrect. I think also I would say it's impossible because emotions influence way too much of our thoughts. They are like the, the cement which holds the bricks of our mind together. And the idea that you can just suppress them or get rid of them is both wrong and unhelpful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Dr. Dean Burnett. To read more about the fascinating neuroscience of emotions, check out his book, Emotional Ignorance. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.